Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be gathered together here, and we ask that you will be together with us, which we know you are. Thank you for your faithfulness, and thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've sent to guide us into all of your truth. So guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 The beautiful thing about the gospel is that the gospel gives us a new start. The gospel provides us with the opportunity to grow and it provides us with the opportunity to explore God. And when we explore him, we're really on a journey and that journey can have its ups and downs. But even when you find yourself in a difficult place in life or you find yourself in a valley, God is right there to guide you through those moments and give you new opportunities to get to know him, new opportunities to learn about him, and new opportunities to grow in faith. And uh, tonight, I, wanna, I, I pray that this will be a very encouraging presentation because we've been going over some incredible prophecies during the last couple of evenings, some incredible Bible truths that have been um, uh, very, very encouraging also, but also quite challenging at times. And um, uh, we, we're going to tonight look at uh, how we can ap apply some of what the things that we've been learning and how we can continue to grow in Christ in our journey with him. What I find fascinating is that when we look at our universe and the way that it's created, it's interesting that God created the universe such that we have days and we have a week and we have months and we have years. And God really, as a creator, orchestrated it this way. And uh, I believe that he did that for a reason, because when God gives us each day a new day, it's like he's also giving us a new opportunity to follow him, a new opportunity to commit ourselves to his way. Uh, this is just a verse that I've um, read uh, so many times, but just I'm so encouraged by. It says in the book Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 21 to 23, the Bible says the following. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new how often? What does it say? Every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's so encouraging to know that as we walk with Christ, and as we choose this path of obedience to his will and to his way, and as we navigate our way through this life, and as we see prophecy fulfilling right before our eyes, we can know that in the midst of all of this, God's faithfulness and his compassion is right there, and it's new every single morning. Amen? Every morning when you wake up, you can turn to God. And though you have experienced failure or disappointment, or though you are going through the trial of your life and everything seems dark around you, each morning you can be reminded that God is faithful and that his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. As we've been discovering throughout this seminar, there have been indications already through the prophecies and the Bible truths that we've been exploring that God wants to give us new starts. As a matter of fact, one of our evenings, uh, this is now quite a, quite a while back, it was in the beginning of our series, I believe it was the uh, fifth presentation, if I remember correctly, we looked at this incredible prophecy in the Old Testament regarding God's chosen people, the Hebrews or the Israelites, and how God was guiding them throughout their year. And you might remember if you were there, and, and otherwise this is maybe just a, just a reminder, or, or, or perhaps it's new to you if you were not with us on, the, on, the, on that fifth evening, but, but what the year, the year began for the Hebrews with a very significant uh, event that they would remember. 
and it was the event of the Passover. And um, this is actually a, a, a feast and a, uh, um, an event that brings us right back to when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And as they were enslaved in Egypt and they cried out to God for deliverance, God sent Moses and he performed miracles on their behalf and eventually led them out of slavery and out of bondage. But right before they left Egypt, right that night before they were to do something, they were to take a lamb and that lamb was to be without blemish and they were to slay that lamb and, and put the blood on the doorpost so that when the 10th plague would take place and the angel of destruction would pass through the land, then their homes would be protected and they would be guided out and God delivered them. And God said something interesting when that happened, the Passover, he said, I want you every single year to remember that you were led out of bondage and out of slavery. Every year for centuries, God's chosen people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, would begin their year, the Jewish year, with celebrating what is called Passover. It was on the 14th day of the first Jewish month, the month of Abib, or also known as the month of Nisan. And this month was to be celebrated by remembering that one day they were, one time they were in slavery, but now they are in slavery no longer. God has set them free. And as I'm thinking about that, I believe that God wants to do the same for his, for his people today. We are God's chosen people today, and he also wants us to remember that we have been set free. We have perhaps not been in a literal uh, country enslaved, but we're all enslaved to sin, right? And God wants to lead us out of the bondage and slavery of sin by reminding us that we also have a Passover lamb. And our Passover lamb is none other than Jesus Christ himself, amen? Because that land that was slain the hundreds and hundreds of years ago pointed forward to Jesus that died for us on the cross. Now, as we also examined earlier in this seminar, there were different moments in the Jewish year that were markers, that were important moments. You have the Feast of Passover, and then you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the First Fruits, and then you had the Feast of Weeks, or what was later called Pentecost. You had the Feast of the Trumpets. We went through this. This is an incredible prophecy predicting the events that would happen from the time Jesus died till the end of time. And perhaps you remember that in the end of the Jewish year, there was another important moment. It was called the Great Day of Atonement. And the Great Day of Atonement was so important that God's people were in sincere prayer in, 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 in anticipation of this day, this moment. Because throughout the Jewish year, when you read the Old Testament, you would find that they were to come into the sanctuary, the temple, and they were to sacrifice the animal that pointed forward to Jesus, and their sins would symbolically be transferred from them to the animal. It was a prophecy of Jesus that would come and die in their place. And each day this would continue to happen, and so the sins symbolically were brought into the sanctuary, into the sanctuary, into the sanctuary, and then once a year, which was called the Day of the Great Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, where you would have the Ark of the Covenant, where God's glory would be manifested between those two cherubims, and he would take the blood of a goat and put it right there on the mercy seat and make an atonement, or the word actually applies an at-one-ment, with the people. And what would happen is symbolically, the sanctuary itself would be cleansed of all the sins. And so this was a great moment and, and uh, the people of God would say to each other on that day, may your name be written in the book of life. 
because this was important because if you had brought your sins and confessed them on the lamb and now your sins were in the sanctuary then on the great day of atonement your sins were now banished blotted out removed forever and so a a new year would then commence and of course this is all typology that speaks to us in volumes when we study the bible because when we come to the book of revelation we learn about the great day of atonement that takes place in the end of time and actually when you study it very carefully you find out that we are right now living in that antitypical day of atonement we are living in the very time where jesus our high priest is in the most holy place of not an earthly sanctuary but the heavenly sanctuary and he's seeking to make an atonement for you before he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords isn't that good news incredibly good news incredibly beautiful truths that are given to us in scripture and so we have these indications throughout scripture about how god wants to give us a new start for god's people in the past it was through these festivals and feasts for us living presently we 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 also are given new opportunities to seek christ every day as we come to the prophecies in the bible But you know, there's another beautiful symbol in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that implies a full surrender to Christ and that you want to be on his side in this great war of thrones, in this great battle between good and evil. And that is the symbol of baptism. Now, baptism is actually a very beautiful symbol, and I've had the privilege as, a, as an evangelist and pastor to baptize people, and it's basically the highlight of my, of my ministry, because when you can, when you, can you know, be together with, with a person that has given their heart to Jesus, and you're able to then, to, to, the, to, to bury them in that water, which is a symbol of the burial of Jesus, and then to bring them up out of the water, which is a symbol of the resurrection of Jesus, what you're doing is leading the person into a covenant relationship with Christ. And baptism is something you find all through the New Testament, individuals that hear the truth of Jesus, that hear the truth of scripture, and that want to belong to Christ, they decide to be baptized. Now, in the course of this presentation tonight, we're gonna to examine a little bit more what, bapti- what baptism actually means and, 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 and what it portrays uh, based on scripture. But before we go there, I have a couple of other um, texts I want to lead you to as we, as we ponder and think about this whole concept of God giving us a new start. Because God is not just giving us a new start the first time we encounter Christ. But do you know that every single day God wants to give us that new start? Because the book of Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16 says this, For a righteous man may fall how many times? seven times. Now, the number seven, I think I've, I've told you before, is a very significant number in scripture. As a matter of fact, the whole story in the book of Genesis begins that God created the world in how many days? Six days. And then the seventh day, what did he do? He sanctified the seventh day, set aside the seventh day. He proclaimed it holy. It was the Sabbath. And so you have a seven day week right there in the beginning. And you can just look it up and you look up the number seven and all through scripture, it had great significance when it came to miracles, when it came to supernatural events, when it comes to prophecies in the book of Revelation. Uh, Just look up the number seven in Revelation. There are sevens all through the book of Revelation. You have seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven angels, seven, 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 seven plagues, all seven, 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 showing that this is the culmination of all things. I think we also examine together there when you come to the genealogy of Matthew chapter one and you read about how Jesus came on the scene. It was after, it was, he was the seventh of the, the seven of, of seven generations that had gone before him. And so every time again in scripture, 
it is implied that there's something with this number seven that is important. And that's why in the book of Proverbs, it says here that um, uh, seven times you might fall. In other words, you may fall many times, but there's good news. You can do what? You can get back up. Amen? It says the righteous man, so the man that has chosen to follow Christ, the one that has chosen to belong to Jesus, the one that has wants to go God's path. Yes, there might be times that we fall, but we can rise up again. We can get back up. The wicked shall fall by calamity. The wicked doesn't get back up, right? But the righteous gets back up. This is really the key to the Christian experience. That as we navigate through life and as we navigate through the challenges of life, that we're willing to get back up. You know, who, any of you that, have, that has had children, you will know that in order for the child to learn how to walk, they'll need to fall a couple of times, amen? But they need to get back up and continue to try. Well, we have a lot of biblical examples of a new start. You know what? The Bible begins already there with a seven-day uh, seven week, six days of creation, and then the Sabbath that is set aside. And I think of the Sabbath in many ways as a, a time that God has set aside to refresh our spiritual life. So that when you go through the week, and it's maybe been a difficult week, it's maybe been a hard week, maybe you've, you feel like just giving up, but then comes the Sabbath, then comes that seventh day and that special meeting with God. And God says, here, I want to refresh you. I want to inspire you. I want to encourage you so that you can meet the new week with new vigor and strength. So Sabbath is a memorial of, of, of God wanting to give us a new start. Then you have the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, an interesting story. They are created in the image of God. They are put there in the Garden of Eden. But then in chapter 3, when you get to Genesis chapter 3, they decide to take of that forbidden fruit. And therefore, they have sided themselves with the enemy in the War of Thrones. But it's not over. The moment that God comes into the garden, he reminds them that he's going to send one that is going to crush the head of that serpent. It's a messianic prophecy right there in Genesis chapter 3.15. It's the first prophecy in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, and God says to Adam and Eve, one will come from the woman, and this is like the, from the lineage of God's people, from the lineage of the woman, there's going to come the promised seed, and the promised seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's a prophecy about Jesus and how he would come, and through his death, he would conquer sin and the grave. Can you say amen? So here we have an example of a new start, a prophecy predicting a new start. Things had gone wrong, but God doesn't give up on the human race. And then you, you race through the story of Scripture and, and you come to chapter 6 and, and things have really gone south. Things have really gone bad. The wickedness is just abounding everywhere and con the continual thoughts of man are evil, the Bible says. But God doesn't give up on mankind. And he says to Noah, I want you to build an ark. And, I'm gonna, and you're going to build that ark and there's going to be enough space in that ark to save anyone that wants to come on that ark. And so the invitation is given for 120 years. As, as Noah is building that ark, he is preaching and, and, and he is asking people and appealing to people, come on board, come on board, come on board, a flood is coming. Well, eventually his family ends up on board of that, of that uh, boat that he has built, and the animals are on board of that boat, and the calamity comes, the storm comes, the rain comes, the floods come, but God has preserved these faithful ones so that he can have a new start, amen? And after many, many months there, um, uh, tossed to and fro by those waves, finally they can get out of that boat, and the first thing that God does is he puts a rainbow in the sky, you remember that? 
And the rainbow is a covenant relationship. That's the, the whole picture. He says, I, wanna, I want a covenant with you. I'm going to give you a new start, a new start. It's all through scripture. Then you come to the story of Abraham. And Genesis chapter 12 says that Abraham, he, uh, he is called by God. And God says to Abraham, I want you to pack up your bags and I'm going to take you to a place that I have prepared for you. God doesn't tell him where he's going. God doesn't give him all the information at once. And so what Abram has to, do, has to do is what we many times have to do. Take a step in faith. Amen? And many times that is also required in our own spiritual life that God doesn't give us all the information at once. He just says, I want you to do this. And if we take that step in faith, then he will reveal what is next on the horizon. Amen? I'm sure that many of you have experienced that or are experiencing that even right now. And so the story continues. God promises Ab that through Abram, he's going to bless all the nations. And Abram has eventually a son. Remember, it took many years and he had to put his faith in God because he was old and he had no son. But he put his faith in God and eventually Abram and Sarah have a son by the name of Isaac. And Isaac has a son by the name of Jacob. And the story of Jacob also illustrates how God wants to give us a new start. Because Jacob was a twin, and his twin brother was Esau, and his twin brother was going to get the birthright. But what did Jacob do? He said, ha ha, no, no, I'm going to get that birthright. And so he stole the birthright from his brother Esau. And so he had to flee from his family. And Esau said, I'm going to take your life, Jacob. And so he had to flee away, and he went far away, and he served his uncle Laban for 20 years. And then as he's gotten married in the meantime and he has children in the meantime, now he's on his way back to his country and he hears of Esau that is coming to meet him with 400 soldiers. And now he has, he's very stressed out. And so he's praying to God. And you can read this in, in the book of Genesis. And it's an incredible story there. And I believe it's chapter 32. And, and he's praying. And this is just the night before he's going to meet his brother Esau. And then he feels... Uh, hand on his shoulder and he thinks it's Esau and he turns around and he starts wrestling with this individual only to find out that it's a heavenly messenger. And then as he realizes that he's not wrestling with his brother, but he's wrestling with an angel, he says to the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. And guess what? The angel gives him a new start because the angel says, your name will no longer be Jacob, which means supplanter or deceiver, but from now on, your name will be Israel. And that's the first time where the name Israel appears in scripture. And Israel means the one that is victorious with God. What an amazing promise. Oh, when you think about Jacob and all of his failures and all of his deceit and all of his lies and all of the misery that he got himself into. And, but then when he wrestled with God, God said, I'm going to give you a new start. And you can also wrestle with God, my friends. You can hold on and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the story continues. And Jacob has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and eventually God brings them to Egypt where they have a place of refuge during a, a severe famine. And years and years go by, but then the tides turn against them. And there's a Pharaoh that, that rises up and, and he's not in favor of these, these, these people, these Canaanites in his land. And he makes them slaves. And for hundreds of years, they are enslaved in this country of Egypt. And then God brings about a deliverer by the name of Moses. Do you know that the name Moses means the one that is drawn out of the water? You remember the story? His mother wants to preserve his life. And so as a baby, he's put in the basket there. And then the princess finds him. And the princess draws him out of the water and calls him Moses. Interestingly enough, the one that was drawn out of the water was the one that was going to draw the people out of Egypt. 
and Moses for, for 40 years. He is the prince of Egypt. And then he thinks he's going to take things in his own hands. And so one day he, he sees a taskmaster that is beating a Hebrew and he thinks, now is the time I'm going to deliver my people. And so he takes the life of the Egyptian taskmaster. But this was not God's plan. It was not to happen that way. It was not to be initiated by him. And he realizes he's in trouble now. And so he flees to the wilderness and he spends 40 years shepherding sheep. It's like a re-education program of God to prepare him for what is next. It's interesting, the life of Moses. Moses died when he was 120 years and you can divide his life into three periods of 40. 40 years as the prince of Egypt, 40 years as a shepherd in the desert. And then when he was 80 years old, you know, ready to, you know, retire. Then God says to him, now I'm going to use you. Now you're ready. And he sends them into the country of Egypt and he sends them as a deliverer. And the last 40 years of his life were probably the hardest. So if you think you're getting ready to retire tonight, <laughs> just get ready for God's call on your life. He might have something significant for you to do. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. All the 80-year-olds say, <laughs> and the 70-year-olds, and the 60-year-olds you know, I'm, I'm 39, so I'm getting nervous about next year. I'm hitting the 40 next year, okay? So uh, anyone that has survived the 40s here? Okay, good. Talk with me afterwards. Okay, but then the story continues, right? And, and we come to the prophet Elijah. And oh, what a great story of Elijah. Elijah is this prophet that is called by God in a, in a time of, of, of severe famine. Not only just famine physically, but famine spiritually. The people have just turned their backs on God. And here comes Elijah, this prophet. And God says to Elijah, I want, to tell you, I want you to tell the king of Ahab that there's not going to be any rain for three and a half years. And that's exactly what happens. And by the way, that whole prophecy, I wish I had time to go into it, but I don't. But that whole prophecy of Elijah and the three and a half years, the 1260 days of famine is a type typology of some of the prophecies that we have been looking that also talk about a period of 1260 years. And so you see, you know, just like Elijah was the prophet called in the Old Testament, so God is calling a people today to stand up and to preach the word faithfully in a severe famine, a spiritual famine that we are in in the world today. You know, the stories in the Old Testament aren't just nice good night stories for children. They are typologies of what God's people will go through in the end of time. Amen. And so Elijah challenges the king. Well, eventually he, uh, the, the, the king says, okay, let's have a showdown. And so he gets all the Baal priests together and he says, Elijah, you come, we'll, mount, we'll meet on Mount Carmel and you will build an altar and the prophets of Baal will build an altar and we'll see who answers by fire. And so the prophets of Baal, they have the opportunity to pray first. And so they're praying and they're, and they're shouting out to the gods and there's no fire that comes down. And then hours go by and hours go by and finally it's Elijah's turn and he kneels down and he takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel and he's putting them together again because he wants to rebuild God's people to restore them and he prays this simple prayer to God and fire comes down from heaven and God honors him. But do you know what happens right after that? It's very interesting. Because, because he starts praying for rain and rain comes and then he becomes very afraid. Sometimes you can be on a mountaintop experience in your spiritual life and suddenly you can find yourself in a valley. And this is what happened to Elijah because Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, finds out what he did. And she says, you know, aha, I'm going to take the life of you, Elijah. And Elijah flees. He's afraid. He flees into the desert. And he feels that he's all by himself. And when he's out there in the desert and he's praying to God, feeling he's all alone, God says to him, Elijah, I want you to know that there are 7,000 people that have not bowed their knee to Baal. In other words, there's still many people out there and you need to go back. And he, be, he gets a new start. 
God says, I want you to go. I want you to anoint that king and anoint that prophet. I have work for you to do, Elijah. Your time is not yet over. A new start. Sometimes we find ourselves in discouragements. Sometimes we find ourselves very low. Elijah was on the point of suicidal thoughts, actually. The Bible says that he said, take my life, Lord. There's no use of me living any longer. And God says, no, I have a task for you. So however low we are, however, however difficult sometimes life uh, faces us, and, and we don't know what is next week is holding or next month or next year, we can be sure God has a purpose and a plan. Amen? And when we surrender to him, he will reveal that to us. Well, Peter in the New Testament is an incredible example of a new start. He was the disciple of Jesus. Uh, he was the kind of the one that always would speak first. And, uh, you know, he would always be ready to say something, but it wasn't always very thought through. As a matter of fact, God, Jesus said to Peter, uh, before, uh, the, you know, be, be, before this is all over, before I am betrayed and, and crucified, you are going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no way, that's not going to happen but he ended up denying his Lord. And you know what? He was so low at that point, and he felt that he had, he had let down his dearest friend, and he felt that he could no longer be used by God. But guess what? When you, when you look at the story of the book of Acts, who is it that God chose to preach probably the most important sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost that led 3,000 people to choose to be baptized? Who was it that God chose to preach that sermon? Peter. Peter, of all people, that let down his Lord and denied his Lord three times. Do you see the mercy and compassion of God? Do you see how he wants to give us a new start? And then we have Paul, of course, persecuting the church, killing the Christians on his way to Damascus to take them captive back to Jerusalem. And right there on his way to, to Damascus, Jesus shows up. Jesus himself shows up. I can almost imagine what that meeting in heaven must be like. You know, they see Paul making his way to Damascus and the angels are gathered together and they're really worried. Look, look, he's on his way. He's going to kill them. He's going to get the Christians. And uh, some of the angels say, should I go? Should I go? And Jesus says, no, this one, leave this one to me. I'll go. And so he meets him on the road to Damascus. He reveals himself to Paul. He blinds him so that he can only look one direction inside himself and see that he's a sinner in need of grace. And he repents and God turns the whole thing around, and from becoming a persecutor of the church, he becomes the very one that builds up the church. A new start, a new start. And then we have the prodigal son, one of the, one of the most well-known parables of Jesus. That incredible story where Jesus talks about two sons, and, and, um, and, and the younger son says to his father, you know what, I want to just get my inheritance right now, which is, by the way, silently saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Just give me the inheritance right now. And so he gets all the money and he leaves and he just, he just lives partying it away and, and all his money is spent up and he ends up amongst the pigs, feeding the pigs. And then he comes to himself, the Bible says, the story says, and he makes this little line. And I could just imagine how he's sitting there, you know, <laughs> like writing it down. Like, what am I going to say to my father when I get back? Well, let me say this. Um, um, you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore, so just make me one of your hired servants. So he has it written down, he's already, you know, puts it in his pocket, and then he makes, it, makes his way to his father, and then the story tells us that when his father sees him from way off, that he starts running towards him. And he starts running towards him, and as he meets that prodigal son, you know, can you imagine the prodigal son now wants to take out the paper to read like, okay, just wait a minute, father, don't, don't, don't embrace me yet because I know I've sinned against you and I can just be your hired servant from now on, but it's too late already because the arms of the father are already around him. There's no way he can't even utter what he had prepared his speech. And his father 
invites him back as his son and gives him a new start. Amen? We have so many incredible stories about how God wants to give his people a new start. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Romans. And the reason why I love the book of Romans is because it is one of the most structured books when it comes to a presentation of the gospel. Now, you'll find it right there after the book of Acts, which is interesting. You have the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which show the, the, the whole picture of, of the life and death and, 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 and resurrection of Jesus and everything uh, connected with the story of Christ. Then we have the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church and everything that they did as they were sent out into the world to preach the gospel. And then the next book that we come to in the New Testament after the gospels, after the book of Acts, is none other than the book of Romans. Now, what is the book of Romans? Paul, the apostle that once persecuted the church, but now is building up the church, wrote this letter called the, the letter to the Romans. Now, when he wrote this book or this letter, he, in a very structured way, outlined this process and experience of the gospel. And what I find so fascinating is it was written to the believers where? In Rome. In Rome. Now, we've been talking quite a bit about Rome during these meetings. And actually, when you look at what Rome became later, in, much later, in centuries later, um, it became a superpower, a superstructure that is actually identified by Bible prophecy as the Antichrist. But in its original state, from the very beginning, those first believers that were gathered in Rome, they received a letter by Paul. It was a letter to the Romans. And guess what, what Paul does? He lays out this whole beautiful, amazing picture of what the gospel is. And so actually, the, the, the book of Romans stands in stark contrast with the church of Rome today. And so you see what change has come in in Christianity. It's very true what, what, what uh, Sam Pascal said um, when he said, you know, that um, uh, it's, it's, it's Christianity began as a fellowship in Palestine, but it moved to Greece and it became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved further into Europe and became an, a culture. And it moved to the United States and became an enterprise. You know, and you see the journey of Christianity over the last uh, 2,000 years, and we see how Christianity has changed along the way. And we need to go back to what it originally was. And so the book of Romans reveals some of this, or, this organic, original truth of the gospel. And I just want to share a couple of verses with you tonight as we talk about this theme of having a new start. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, these are probably some of the most famous verses from the book of Romans. And Paul says the following, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He's talking here about what the gospel is, and he says the gospel of Christ is, listen very carefully, the power of God. It's the power of God. And so in order to have a new start, you have to have power. But in order to have power to have a new start, you need to look for that power, listen very carefully, outside of yourself. Now, I spend a lot of my life in airports. Unfortunately, I'm traveling a lot and I'm different places. But whenever I'm, I have, you know, like uh, time in airports and I have a little bit of extra time, I like to, you know, stroll through the bookstores here and there. And it's interesting because there's a type of book that you will find basically anywhere on this planet and it's the genre of books that is called self-help. 
self-help books, you know? And um, self-help books are all about you basically developing yourself into a, a better person. So, you know, seven steps to become a better leader, you know, five habits to become richer, uh, so and so. And you have so many of them anywhere where you go. But there's something different when it comes to the gospel. My friends, the gospel is not a self-help book. Because the gospel is not telling you how to find power within yourself to develop yourself into a better leader or to make more money or to do this or that. No, the Bible tells us that you are actually incapable of any of this and you need a power outside of yourself. That's exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is the power of God. We need a power outside of us. And that's why Paul, in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, uses quite extensive, uh, an extensive amount of space in this letter to outline our desperate need of a power outside of us. Actually, if you read through Romans chapter 1, and you read through Romans chapter 2, and you read through Romans chapter 3, it, it, it just portrays the human condition. It's like he's saying, like, I want you to know what the human condition is like, because when you understand what the human condition is like, then you will understand the need that humans have. You know, I've used this illustration before. Imagine if you're going to the beach and you go to the beach and it's a beautiful day. And this is scenario one. And then I'll come with scenario two. Scenario one, you're on the beach. It's a beautiful day. The ocean is right in front of you. Uh, everything is just fine. And you step a little bit into the water and the water is just up to your knees and you're having a great time. And you're standing there and suddenly someone comes behind you and runs and pulls and, and grabs your arm, pulls you out of the water and says, I saved you. What would you think about that individual? Well, you would think, well, I didn't need your, I didn't need your help. <laughs> I was doing perfectly well. But scenario number two, same beach, same water. But instead of going up to your knees, you go for a swim. And as you go for a swim, you're enjoying your time and you look back at the beach and you think, okay, now I should turn around and swim back. And, and so you try to swim back and, and you realize that the tide is pulling you away. And the more you're swimming, the further you get away from the beach. And if that's not bad enough, and here comes my preacher imagination, okay, there comes this little fin sticking up out of the water and it starts make, making circles around you, right? And the circles are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And you realize you're in big trouble. You're swallowing water. Your head is under the water and you're just about to stay above and the shark is getting closer. And then in the distance, you see a boat and you start waving your arms and, and suddenly a person on the boat sees you and, and they make their way to you. And just before the shark bites you, an uh, arm of that same guy of scenario number one grabs you and pulls you into the boat. And he says, I saved you. You're grateful for the rest of your life. Amen. And so, you know, what many times happens is we present the gospel without revealing the scenario of how desperately we are in need of the gospel. And so we say Jesus saves and someone else says, yeah, from what? I'm doing perfectly fine. But Paul in the book of Romans uses three chapters. He says, okay, so this is what it's like. And when you read those three chapters of the book of Romans, you feel like you're drowning and that shark is getting closer and closer. And you're just desperately trying to get that last breath of air. And then he says, but there's salvation in Christ. There's a new start. Take notice of this, Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Here, we're all in the same problem. We're sinking in the sea. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law reveals how sinful we are and we're in desperate need and all the world is guilty and there's nothing we can do about it. But, oh, I love that word. 
Here it comes. Now things start turning around. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, by the Old Testament, basically, he says. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul is saying is there is hope there is one that has come and he's demonstrated the righteousness of God. It is Jesus Christ himself and he is a propitiation. Now that's a kind of a fancy theological word, but it basically just means that he took our place. He stepped into the place and, and we all deserve to die, but, but he took our sins upon himself and he died in our place. He is the one that came down from heaven in order to save us, in order to take upon himself the sins of the world and die for us so that we can receive the gift of salvation. I love how Bruce Shelley in his book, Church History in Plain Language, in his opening sentence is just absolutely brilliant. And he says the following, Christianity is the only major religion to have at its center event, the humiliation of its God. So what Bruce Shelley is saying is, is that in the Christian faith, God himself is not st standing on the sidelines and looking what is happening and, and just wondering how all this is going to, going to work out. No, God steps into the suffering. God himself becomes a human being. And the incarnation of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ born as one of us, is going to be a theme that you can ponder and think about and study the rest of your life and you will only scratch the surface. It's an incredible mystery, and yet it's the most beautiful thing ever. Jesus steps into the human race in order to save it. Can you say amen? And you know, as you progress through the book of Romans, in Romans chapter three, we have this beautiful portrayal of the gospel. In Romans chapter four, we are told about how we can live by faith. And the example that is given there in Romans chapter four is none other than the example of Abram and how he lived by faith. And one of my favorite verses in Romans chapter 4 is verse 21, where it says that Abram was fully convinced that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able to perform. And I just love that definition of faith. That when, when, when we have faith in God, what does it mean to have faith in God? It means to be fully convinced, not 90%, not 99%, fully 100 convinced that whatever God promises, whatever he says to us in his word, he is also able to perform. That's the kind of faith that we need to live by, amen? believing the promises of God. In Romans chapter 5, you have this incredible um, contrast and comparison between uh, Adam, the first human being, and then Christ, which is basically also called the second Adam, because Christ came to save the race. And what we receive naturally through Adam by being, you know, descendants of Adam, all of us, is sin, condemnation, and death. But in Romans chapter 5, it is portrayed what we receive by putting our faith in Jesus. It's like an adoption into a new family. We go from being in the family of Adam, stepping by faith into the family of Christ. And through Christ, we receive righteousness and justification and eternal life. Through Christ, we receive a new start. And then we come to Romans chapter 6. 
And here I want to just uh, look a little bit closer at the illustration that is given in Romans chapter 6 regarding baptism. Now take notice of this. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 6, the Bible says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, listen to this, were baptized into his what? Into his death. Now this is interesting language. So that New Testament symbol of surrender to Christ, baptism, is actually symbolizing that we are identifying with the death of Jesus. Now look what else it says. Not only the death of Jesus, but also the resurrection of Jesus. It says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Now, just, just, just kind of try to, try to taste the power of that verse that we just read. Now, the resurrection event, just from a physical standpoint, a person is dead and then a person is alive. Now, would you agree that we could, we, we could say from, from analyzing and looking at that, a dead person becomes alive, that there's some power involved? Amen? Some, some supernatural power that is involved? Amen? Now, now, what he's saying here is that just that Christ, he rose from the grave and there was a supernatural power in that. So when you commit yourself to Christ and you go through that symbolism of baptism, you are identifying yourself with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is now the power at work in your life. Amen. This is amazing. What a power is available for the Christian. What a power is available for those that want to have a new start and walk in newness of life. It says, for we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You see, there's a new start, my friends. As you go under the water, it is like a burial. You're putting away the old man and you come up as a new person in Christ Jesus. And the very power of the resurrection is the very same power that is to guide you and lead you in your spiritual experience. We are identifying ourselves with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We want to, his experience to be our experience. We want to come as close as we can to him as we walk in obedience to his way. Baptism is a new start with Jesus. Now I want you to take notice that in Matthew chapter 3, as we go to the gospel account of Matthew, that Jesus himself decided to be baptized. Now you might think, why did Jesus actually, why was actually Jesus baptized? Because isn't Jesus, you know, without sin? I mean, there's, there's obviously no old man that he needs to lay down and, and to start a newness of life because he, he was blameless, he was sinless, he was perfect. But do you know why Jesus was baptized? He was baptized as an example for us. The fact that he was baptized was showing what he wanted the human race to do and what he wanted them to go through. Take notice of Matthew chapter 3, what happened when he was baptized. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him. You know, John understands this. He's the forerunner. He's already proclaimed the coming of the Lamb. And, and, and he, he, he absolutely cannot understand that Jesus would want to be baptized by him. And so he says, I need to be baptized by you. And you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus come up, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So two things happen as Jesus comes up out of the water. According to the Bible, there's a voice, and the voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then also there is the dove, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit that is alightening upon him, like the Holy Spirit is, is coming upon him at that moment that he comes up out of the water. Now, God the Father wants to speak these same words over each one of us. He wants to say to you and to me, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Do you know that the same words that God spoke over his son as he committed himself through baptism are the same words that he wants to speak over us as we commit ourselves to baptism? Matthew chapter 4, it's interesting, right after the baptism of Jesus, as he comes up out of the water, the very next thing you read about in chapter 4 is that he's led into the wilderness and he is tempted in the wilderness by the enemy. Now, I want you to take notice of the first thing that the enemy says to Jesus in the wilderness. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was, a hung he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to, to him, he said, listen to the words, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. What was the last thing that Jesus heard when he came up out of the water? What did God the Father say to his Son? This is my beloved son. First temptation, if you are the son of God. Do you know, my friends, that whenever you commit yourself to Christ, whenever you seek to have a new start with Jesus, the enemy in this war of thrones, the enemy in this great controversy, will try to get you to, that he will try to, to, for you to doubt your identity in Christ. He will try to, 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 to sow seeds of doubt in your heart that, that, that you're not what the, what the Word of God says you are, right? He will say, I, are you really a Christian? Look at the way you're living. Are you really, are you sure about this? You know, a new start is connected with a new identity, amen? And this identity is something that we need to treasure. Sadly enough, sometimes even in our own choices and the way we live our lives, we basically weaken the very identity that God seeks to give us. You know, I've come up with this little phrase, so bear with me for a moment. This was kind of my own, um, <laughs> uh, my, my, my own phrase that I came up with to describe this problem that many Christians have, okay? I like to call it the just-in-case theology. Now, it goes like this, you know? God calls us and he gives us his word and he gives us all these amazing promises about the future that he wants to give us through Christ Jesus. And we have this incredible close of this book about a world where there's no sin, no suffering and, and everything and heaven is just amazing. And so we want that. And so, and so we, we, we stand in that truth. But, 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 you know, there's this doubt in our minds sometimes that we think, what if it's not true? <laughs> I read the book of Revelation, and I read the end, and I read about these fascinating promises, and I read about the world that God uh, has prepared for me, but, but just in case, just in case it's not true, I also want to get the best out of this life here and now. And so many Christians, I've seen it again and again and again, they live out what I like to call the just-in-case theology. Oh yes, I want, I, I want what God promises, but, but just in case, just in case it doesn't happen. I also want to get the best out of this life here and now. And you know what happens? We start living our lives in two worlds. And so what we do is we, we, we're, we're in what we actually think is the real world. You know, we put on our clothes in the morning and we eat our breakfast and we go to work and, and we have our free time and, and we do whatever we want to do in life. And, and that's so-called the real world, we think. But then just in case, just in case there is another world, just in case the Bible is true, well, I, I also want to have a little bit of that. And so we kind of now and then step into the experience of Christianity and we read about angels and miracles and, and Jesus that rose. And just in case it's true, I'll listen to it. I'll be around others that believe 
believe it. I'll read my Bible, but just in case it's not true, I want to go back to what is the real world. Do you, do you sense that, that this is perhaps sometimes the way we live our lives? I'll admit myself, I fall into the trap of the just-in-case theology. But my friends, let me, let me tell you very plain, from Genesis to Revelation, there is no just-in-case theology in the Bible, okay? Let's just dismiss that right away, because there is really only one real world. And the real world is a battle between good and evil. The real world is... It's the Holy Spirit is given to us. The real world is Jesus that died and rose. The real world is the second coming of Christ. The real world is that this world was created good in the beginning, but it's fallen and it's now in a conflict between good and evil. This is the only real world we live in. There is no other reality, amen? Because scripture portrays it. And once we start believing that, we will find that our identity in Christ will become so much stronger. God wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit just like he filled Jesus with the Holy Spirit when Jesus was baptized. You know, I find it fascinating when you, begin, when you re read about the beginning of the early church and you read about the day of Pentecost and how they were filled with the Spirit and then Peter that denied his Lord was the one that was chosen to, to preach that powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost. When you look at the result of, of, of that outpouring of the Spirit, it's so encouraging. Take notice what happens when the people, thousands of people, are hearing this message. Take notice of the response among these people. The Bible says, now when they heard this, they heard this sermon, they saw the outpouring of the Spirit, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. Repent. We talked about that earlier. What does repentance mean? Repentance means turning around. It means if you're going one direction, turn around 180 degrees and go another direction. Repentance is turning away from sin, but repentance has two dimensions. It's turning away from sin and it's turning towards Jesus. It's turning towards something better. And so it says, repent, repent, and let every one of you be what? Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Let your sins be buried there in the watery grave so you can come up as a new person. It says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as, as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. They gladly received the word, and the consequence of them gladly receiving the word was saying, hey, I'm in. I want to be baptized. I want to be part of this incredible movement. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. They were added to the early church. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So that wasn't the end of their journey. It was only the beginning of their journey. They continued studying the scriptures. They continued praying and, and gathering in a fellowship that, that loved the word of God, that believed the word of God, that was seeking to live the word of God. And so you have the story of the book of Acts. And, and the book of Acts, this was only the beginning. As, as you read chapter by chapter by chapter, you read about how more people are added into this incredible movement. I love the story in Acts chapter 8. You know, it's just like, this, this is like too good to, be, uh, to, to, to have happened by coincidence. There's a man, uh, an Ethiopian man, and he has just been in Jerusalem, and he's on his way back to his country. And as he is journeying through the wilderness, he happens to get a copy of the book of Isaiah, and he's reading the book of Isaiah, and he's reading chapter 53, where it talks about this messianic prophecy about the Messiah that would come, and he doesn't understand what he's reading. 
Well, God had this all figured out beforehand, and so he told Philip, one of the disciples, to go to the wilderness, and Philip didn't know why he had to go to the wilderness, so he goes to the wilderness, and he's wondering, what am I doing here? And then suddenly he sees that chariot in the distance, and the Spirit of God says to Philip, go to that chariot, and he runs to the chariot, and right when he comes to the chariot, the man is just reading about the prophecy of Christ and wondering, who is this talking about? And Philip says, hey, I can explain and he gets on the chariot and they ride together and, and he explains the Messiah. He preaches Jesus to this man. Now you might think, well, that's too good to, that's too good to be true. If I had enough time tonight, I could tell you experience after experience after experience where God has led me to people just at the right time that needed to hear the gospel. And it's just, it's, it's, it's too good to be coincidence. I, the more I follow Christ, the more I, I find myself um, endeavoring to be in tune with his spirit, the less I actually believe in coincidence. I don't think it's even coincidence that you are here tonight. I don't think it's coincidence that you've come to these meetings. I don't think it's coincidence. I believe that God is orchestrating affairs to let people meet at the right time in order for his will to be done. What do you say? Amen. Amen? Now take notice of the result of, 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 this, of this meeting that they had. Acts chapter 8, now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, the, 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 the man says, see, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Praise the Lord. What an amazing moment. God has foreseen all that would take place and he let it just come together in a miraculous way. And God is the same God that we're serving today. God, the God that inspired and led the early church. When you read the book of Acts, it's the same God that's at work today, amen? Now I wanna, I wanna cover one more thing before we wrap up here because some people have asked me about what about rebaptism? Does the Bible say anything about that? Because we're talking here about a new start and the Bible is inviting us into this incredible um, uh, baptism experience, but does the Bible say anything about being rebaptized? Is it just a one-time thing or is it something that can happen in my life again for in certain circumstances? Well, guess what? The Bible actually gives us an, an example of rebaptism, and, and we find from this example, also in the book of Acts, uh, some truth about, about what, what might be in place uh, when it comes to a rebaptism. Now take notice of this, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, verse 1 to 5. It says, And it happened while Apollos, which was one of the preachers of those days, was at Corinth, there was a city in those days, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, which was a very central city, uh, where he was preaching and, and laboring. And then it says, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered and said, so they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what's taking place here? There's, a, there's the, the, these, these people and they, and they have heard the truth and they've heard the preaching of John and they've heard the importance of, of, of repentance and their hearts are stirred and they make a decision to be baptized and so they're baptized. 
And then as time goes on, they're, they're learning more truths about God. And eventually when Paul comes around and Apollos comes around and Paul comes around, they're hearing about some major important paradigm shifting truths of the scripture, among others, the Holy Spirit. And so as they hear about these paradigm shifting truths that they're now exposed to, they say, hey, wait a minute, you know what? I, I want a new start. You know, and it doesn't mean that their first start wasn't a good one, and it doesn't mean that they were unsaved before. They were walking in obedience. They had an experience by faith, but they say, hey, wait, I I've been learning something so significant here that I actually just want to mark this moment, and I want to say, hey, baptize me again into this experience. And so they're baptized, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, there is a place for rebaptism. It's a place between you and God, something that you need to think about. But, but, but God is just showing us through Scripture that when some significant truth is introduced to us, especially some significant truth regarding how we should live and prepare for the second coming of Christ, we can say maybe, hey, I would like a new start. I would like a new start. And maybe, maybe there's some of you tonight and you've never been baptized. We want to give that opportunity to you as well to say, you know what? You can take your stand in the War of Thrones. What do you say? Amen? You can take your stand. You can say, you know what? I'm learning about the War of Thrones. I'm learning about prophecies of fulfilling. I'm learning about the truth of God's Sabbath and the truth of what happens when a person dies and the truth that there is no eternal torment, but there's a loving God. I'm learning all of these truths about God's movement and, and a faith-based community. And guess what? You know, I, I just want to take my stand. I want to say, yes, count me in. I want to be on the winning side when this all plays out and it's playing out right now. And so, you know, when we come together like this, we're, we're, it's been incredibly encouraging for me to be able to present. And I, and, I, and I know that many of you have come with great feedback about this series. And, and we're just so grateful for what God has been doing. But tonight, tonight I want to just take the opportunity to give you the opportunity to respond to some of the things that you've been learning. And so if we can have some people share, share out the cards right now. Because, you know, it's not just, we're not just here because we want to learn about some theory about what's going to happen. But we want to also be able to have the experience of saying, you know what? I want to take a stand in this War of Thrones. I want to give my life to Jesus and be on his side. And so if you would just take a moment to fill out this card before you leave tonight, we would be very grateful for that. Because as a preacher, I believe it's my responsibility to preach, but also to give the opportunity for people to respond. And uh, so you get your card and I hope you have a pen with you or maybe we have some people that can share out some pens as well. And we'll just take a, sh a short moment, a few minutes to go over this and then we'll, we'll close with a word of prayer. But I'm grateful that God wants to give each of us a new start. And uh, you know, it doesn't matter if we've been five years into this Christian journey or 10 years or 20 years, God wants to give each of us a new start and that we can be thankful for. God is good. And he wants to guide us in this journey. So as you get your card, it says simply in the top of the card, it says, I surrender my life to Jesus, accepting him as my savior and Lord. I eagerly desire to follow him all the way and thank him for leading me into his truth because I want to be ready when Jesus comes. And then we have three boxes that you can tick off if this is apply, applicable to your life. And this is something between you and God. This is something that, 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 that God's spirit, uh, I know, will guide you in, 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 in um, evaluating. Uh, but we do want to give you the opportunity. And it says here, I look forward to box number one, being baptized like Jesus was baptized. And maybe there's someone here tonight that has actually never been baptized before. I would, I would feel, I, I would, it, would be, it would be a sin for me to lead a, a whole series like this and not give that invitation. 
So we want to give that invitation to you. If you're here tonight and you've never been baptized before, you say, tonight, count me in. Tonight, I want to be on the side of Christ in this war of thrones. You just check off that box that you would like to be baptized just like Jesus was baptized. Second box is regarding being rebaptized. Now, that's something that, of course, you need to, you, you need to pray about and think about. But, but if this is something that you feel God leading you to, you, you feel that you really want just this new start. And there have been some things that you've been discovering and learning that just are totally, totally paradigm shifting in your Christian experience. And you want to kind of take just a new stand for truth tonight. You can say, you know what? I want to be rebaptized. And we would love to help you through that process. And then thirdly, the third box is if you would like to be part of God's family by a profession of faith. You know, you say, you know what? I want to belong to a community of believers that go by the word of God. I want to belong to a community of believers that, that, that seek to keep all of the commandments, not just nine of them. But I want to be a part of a community that, that keeps the Sabbath as well, as we've been learning about in this series. You want to be part of a community that, that, is, that wants to stand on the word of God and not by the traditions of man. If that's your desire and you say, you know what, I wanna, I wanna, I'm looking for a fellowship, I'm looking for a place where I can uh, be part of a community like that, a church like that, that stands on God's word, a prophetic movement at a time like this, you can check off that box as well. So, so take a moment to check off those boxes. Thank you so much for coming. And as you leave, uh, make sure you give it to one of, uh, one of the people here so that we can help you in your journey with Christ. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I'm just so grateful that you want to give us a new start. I'm just so grateful for everything that you've been doing for us in the course of this series. And I want to thank you, Lord, that the journey with you is, is, is a journey that, 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 we can, that we can live by every single day. It's, it's, it's a journey where we can look unto you as the author and finisher of our faith, and you are right by our side to guide us along. Thank you for that. Thank you for giving us new starts, that even when we fall, that we can get back up. And thank you for the amazing promises in your word. I pray that you'll be with each and every person here and you, you know our backgrounds and, and the things that we struggle with and our needs. I just pray, Lord, that you will meet us right where we are and that you will also lead each one of us to the next step that you have for us as we've been learning about all these incredible truths from your word. Thank you for being with us and thank you for your faithfulness. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.